Episode 38 with urbanist and architect Tony L. Griffin. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with urbanist and architect Tony L. Griffin. Tony's work asks us to question the design of our neighborhoods, communities, and cities. From values of belonging to voices of protection, Tony's work calls for us to stand in the center of who we say we are and seek justice for the inhabitants of the cities we claim to love. Raised in a thriving black neighborhood in the south side of Chicago, Tony's love of architecture grew out of her fondness for Chicago's iconic landmarks, using architecture as her way of navigating the vast Midwestern city. Her career began at the design behemoth of Skidmore, Owens, and Merrill, but her desire for a more holistic, in-depth practice led her into the worlds of urban planning, policy, and city design. A professor in practice of urban planning at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, she leads the Just City Lab, a research platform for developing values-based planning methodologies and tools, including a framework of indicators and metrics for evaluating social justice in public space. Tony's work asks us to, and I quote, imagine that the issues of race, income, education and inequality, and the resulting segregation, isolation, and fear could be addressed by planning and designing for greater access, agency, ownership, beauty, diversity, and empowerment. Imagine a set of values that would define a community's aspiration for the just city. Imagine we can measure design's impact on justice. Imagine we can use measures to minimize conditions of injustice." End quote. In today's episode, we discuss Tony's journey from the south side of Chicago through the various avenues of design, planning, and policy, how to read the language of an urban landscape, and just what is a just city. Today's conversation is one of academic rigor and one that grounds the values and design ethos here at the Institute of Black Imagination. Consider our virtual class for this semester now in session. If you find this content valuable, share it with just one friend you think would really enjoy it. I mean, it's a free gift. Let us know what resonated with you over on Twitter and Instagram at Black Imagination. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and, you know, let us know your thoughts with a review over on Apple Podcast. We love to hear your thoughts. And you can always come into our world via IVI Digital at blackimagination.com. Now, grab your notebook. Professor Griffin is in the building. Well, first of all, Miss Tony Griffin, um, <laughs> welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I am so eager to get started um, and dig into your body of work and to just flesh out what it means uh, to live in a just 
city. Um, your your work is is incredible, and I'm so excited to have you. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, before we started our recording, I shared with you that your work has been a screensaver of mine for years and years and years. The the photography you've done of Alvin Ailey, you know, I started. Uh, dancing when I was really young. My mom took us to Alvin Ailey and uh, American Ballet Theater and all of these things when we were really little kids. Uh, and so I've always been drawn to that work and that genre and your photography is just so inspiring and captures so much of the movement of Ailey. So to know that I am now talking to the photographer is way cool. Uh, <laughs> so I'm equally as excited to be in conversation with you this afternoon. Oh, amazing. Thank you. Um, so, so to start, um, who would you like to dedicate this conversation to today? Oh my God. Now you're going to make me tear up. So uh, maybe this is why I was feeling the way I was yesterday. So yesterday was the fifth anniversary of my mom's passing. So I think I'd like to dedicate this conversation to my mom, who I think is the driver along with my dad of why you would think to have a conversation with me would be interesting and <laughs> what drove and drives the work that I do. So I will dedicate it to my parents, but in particular, my mom. Beautiful, beautiful. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to welcome her spirit into this conversation as well. Um, so to just hop right in, can there be a just city. And the the reason I want to just hop right into that is, you know, I work a lot in the worlds of fashion and um, we always speak about, you know, justice and activism in the world of fashion. And I always ask, can there be justice on the runway? Meaning, can we have these conversations in a space that's so ingratiated in not only capitalism, but colonialism? And so in thinking about the built environment, like, can there be a just city? I strongly believe that there must be the pursuit of a just city. Um, whether or not we can get to a wholesale condition of total justice is unclear to me. Um, because I think forms of justice look really different in different contexts and for different people. You know, like, so justice for you is going to look different than justice for me, even though, you know, people watching see two brown people talking. Um, but our experiences and the ways in which we have to navigate the world as a man and a woman, just as one example, would suggest that the way in which we feel justice has been um, acquired is going to look different. And justice for you as a 10-year-old versus justice for you as a 50-year-old is also going to look different. So I think the pursuit of a just city is an ongoing endeavor that we all have to be involved in in order to address the various conditions of injustice that exist in the various contexts in the world. Um, and we'll we'll double tap on that because that's you okay. know this is a this is a huge topic. Um, but you know, in speaking about you know, I think even just current events, right? Like we recently mm -hmm. had a fire uh, in a housing complex yeah. in the Bronx yeah. that yeah. you know took the lives of seventeen people, and it was started by a space heater. And mm -hmm. I think in the way in which media frames issues like this. And then I think just 
the ways in which we understand it collectively, a lot of times the onus is on, right, that person, right? Like the person, yeah. like, how could you yeah. have done this? Personal how could responsibility. You leave? Exactly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, through your work and, you know, just an, a greater understanding that it's actually not just that, right? Like that there mm-hmm. are other invisible systems and participants in something that creates uh, a situation like this. Could you like unpack that for us? Like maybe reveal some of these hidden systems at play. Yeah. And and you're touching upon a really important point, which is uh, about the narratives that get used that situate a victimization, right. And a blame on those who've been oppressed or those who've been harmed. Right. And that's something that we very much have to pay attention to, which is the reversal of harmful narratives in the same way that we have to pay attention to the reversal of institutional and systemic practices that exclude and extract and devalue and discriminate, right? And so both of those things have to be addressed in order for us to recondition or unlearn right, harmful narratives and recondition and place the blame and onus and responsibility and accountability on the structures and the systems that created that condition to happen. So for example, why are we not talking about the laws and codes that regulate the the conditions for heating, cooling systems and buildings, the code enforcement that has to be kept up to speed, the ways in which these projects are financed and the, and the requirements that they have for certain building materials and conditions and um, regulations. Um, why are we not talking about that? And I think in some instances, you know, in some media outlets, you are kind of pointing back to, you know, the property management and the ownership of the building and the rules and regulations that govern that such that we're understanding why are poor people always the most vulnerable to these kinds of harms, right? And so it is really important, and this is where I think, you know, conversations with media about their responsibility as a part of their reporting to enlighten us on the fuller context of which injustice exists. And, you know, there has to be I think an elevated responsibility, especially given the different um, outlets that we have for media and acquiring information, for there to be some both accountability and responsibility on the part of those outlets to help provide the, the more robust information we need to be more informed about where injustice lies uh, and where the accountability is for it. Yeah, and, and and thinking about, right, that this happened in 2022, but you know it's it's a it's a it's a result it's the residue of mm-hmm. things that were put in place in this country decades ago right mm-hmm. like this can't be divorced from the histories of of redlining um this can't be divorced from you know systems of you know concentrated you know poverty and crime you know as it relates to not only the built environment but just geography you know right. um writ large and it's actually what initially interested me in the world of design once i understood or once i could see that the, that the environment itself was designing me, 
right? Like mm-hmm. the where mm-hmm. I grew up, like, and not even mm-hmm. just where I grew up, you know, the traffic jam, right? The, mm-hmm. the way the trains are running, how mm-hmm. I feel walking down the street is yeah. a direct result of decisions that were made yeah. decades ago in an environment in which I find myself. And so, you know, in thinking about, um, how our environments shape us. Um, and actually we can kind of maybe even real, take this moment to reel back. Speaking about how environments shape us, how did the environment of growing up in the South side of Chicago shape you and the way that you understand yeah. the built environment? Yeah. I'm glad you take us back there. Cause as you were um, talking, I was going to make the comment that imagine if in your elementary school days that you had a class, a civics class that posed that very question that began to introduce you to a different awareness of your environment. Why does my neighborhood look like this? Why does my neighborhood look different than the neighborhood on that side of town? And through that, you began to get this, you know, early understanding and history of what shapes space. Um, there used to be a publication used in the public schools of uh, Chicago well before my time that taught about the civics of how cities are formed uh, and how your cities were formed. Imagine that was part of your early curriculum that you framed that. So, you know, my, my, my upbringing on the south side of Chicago um, was a really fabulous one. I grew up in a lower middle class neighborhood. Everybody around me was black. Uh, all my needs were met, <laughs> my shopping, my play, my school. You know, I think kindergarten was the only year where I had white kids in my class, and there were two. Uh, when I do uh, talks, uh, I sometimes bring that uh, first grade picture into the frame um, and just sort of to ground people in, you know, this was my everyday. And then I ask a question, how many of you grew up in a segregated neighborhood? And usually, it's really interesting when I'm presenting the right audiences, no one raises their hand. I say, oh, so you all went to school with black and brown kids in your class. And they go, oh, yeah, no. I say, let me ask the question again. <laughs> you know, so this, this idea of the narrative of segregation as only applying to people like me versus if you're a, a, a white person, you too grew up in a segregated neighborhood because there wasn't a sense of racial diversity. There's also this sort of narrative that because I grew up in an all black neighborhood that I grew up poor, which I did not, right? And so I grew up, like I said, in a lower, lower middle class neighborhood with all my needs met. You know, the only time that I was really in the presence of white people is when we got in the car, drove 20 minutes and went downtown. And I think my love of architecture grew out of just, I just have fond memories of landmarks that I will remember, which were buildings which as an early kid, when we were going to my grandmother's house or somewhere, I knew where we were going. It's like, so if I saw this gold steeple with a man on a horse, I knew where we were going to my grandmother's house. If I saw the Wrigley building, then I knew where we were going out to dinner. If I saw Lake Point Towers, which is out on the lake, I knew where we were going somewhere on the north side. So I have these early members of uh, memories of architecture being landmarks for me. And there were all these different shapes and colors and things that just kind of gravitated uh, to me. But it's interesting because it wasn't until after I graduated architecture school and I got my first job working for Skidmore, Owings and Merrill back in Chicago um, and the type of work I was doing there that I really started to question how, because I was beginning to see how the flows of capital were moving to create architecture. 
I was beginning to see the role of the mayor and the Department of City Planning as, and private developers and how they were making decisions that shaped the physicality of place. I was designing what those spaces looked like, but I wasn't making the decision about where, how much capital we spend. We'll build X, not Y. We'll get to that space through this roadway network or this transit hub. And so it was really then that I was like, oh, you know, architecture may be a bit too limiting because now I'm beginning to ask these really profound questions about, well, how come this neighborhood isn't getting that investment? Right? How come we're not building a value around Black heritage and Black heritage and cultural tourism and investing in Black restaurants in the same way that we're investing in Chinatowns or Little Italy's and places like that? I'm like, what's up with that? <laughs> and so it was there that I began to realize the limitations of architecture specifically, um, was becoming more interested in urban design and public policy. So I stepped away from the firm, I took a year off and did a Loeb Fellowship uh, at Harvard's Graduate School of Design and then pivoted from there. And, and so my work since then has been integrating design and I'm so grateful for my foundations as a designer. I know how to design and put buildings together, but now I'm trying to, I've transitioned that into becoming more of a decision maker about where that happens, how that happens, who does it. Who's involved in that process? Where does the capital come from? Who are the developers? Who are the policymakers? What is the regulation that I need to write in order for this to be more equitable and inclusive? So from that little experience as a child on the South Side of Chicago and growing up in this healthy all black environment, then transitioning to a profession that was predominantly white and male, I found in this sort of third sort of phase of my experience in the world is how I'm trying to push those resources that I know exist into the spaces where black and brown people are such that the equity proposition for how we have choices and make decisions about our own wealth gets situated in how we design the built environment. Ah, uh, that was literally like a thesis for this entire <laughs> interview because I'm like, girl, there are points I'm like tapping all the way back all into. Right. But, you know, while we're talking about it, like, could you explain to us what that relationship is actually between like the mayor and the developer and private investors and, you know, maybe even like the city planner? Like how how do those levers yeah. even function? What is what is that system? Yeah, sure. it's a really great question, because when I was in school for architecture, you know, we only had one semester where we were doing what we called urban design work. In the architecture school, you're typically asked to, you're given a site and you design a building of some sort. And you consider what's around the building a little bit, but not that much, right? You're giving a program, I'm gonna do a museum, a library, housing, something like that. When you start to move into the discipline of urban design, you begin to take in a larger context. So now I'm maybe designing a neighborhood or a whole district. I have to consider multiple blocks, multiple types of uses of buildings on those blocks. How do we get to those spaces? What is the street network, the sidewalk network? Are there parks? What's the landscape treatment? So you begin to take in a larger set of issues when you're working at the urban design scale. What I recognize then is there's a scale called urban planning. So now we begin to overlay the policy sort of construct, uh -huh, right? Okay. And so 
urban planning when we think about it from the perspective of the city or the mayor, right? So the mayor's office has a department of planning, a department of transportation, a department of public works, a department of health and education. So all of those departments have some relationship to the physical environment of city. So planning is going to tell you, um, um, they're going to lay out something called zoning and land use. So they're gonna tell you in this area of town, you can build residential and retail and office buildings. In this part of town, you can build warehouses and factories. In this part of town, you can build X. So from block to block, there is already a designation of what you can build in terms of uses. There's also a designation of how tall it can be, how many stories, what you have to have on the ground floor, the maximum amount of square footage. So zoning then begins to regulate the form that a building might take and its relationship to the street. Department of Transportation and Public Works, they control everything from building the building on the street, right? So the sidewalks, the curb cuts, the, the cartway, which is where traffic flows, the flow of traffic. So that has a design too. So next time you're walking down through the city and walking down you know, sidewalks and streets, notice the difference between the width of the sidewalk from street to street. Notice how wide, how many lanes of cars are in the street. Notice if there's street trees and landscaping. Notice if there's a strip of green space in the middle of the street, like Lenox Avenue we both live in Harlem, right? So there's always some public agency that is controlling and regulating those types of things that are in cities. So there were projects I was doing when I was beginning to realize, oh, there's a whole set of rules and regulations that I have to follow in order to determine what kind of architecture that I build. And there are a group of people and systems that make decisions about those rules and regulations that determine that. So when I took that low fellowship, after the fellowship, I quit working for the private sector firm and went to work for a city. First, I worked for the Upper Manhattan Empowerment Zone here in New York, and then Washington, DC. And then I was Cory Booker's first planning director in Newark because I wanted to be on the other side of the table making decisions. Like I wanted to set the rules and the regulation and the policy such that designers like me could create the kind of you know, city and use a type of imagination to create a different type of city in different parts of the city, right? And wanted to use this, all this expertise I learned at SLM and I wanted to push that into neighborhoods where I wasn't seeing that type of design excellence, that type of innovation and creative placemaking that was creating beautiful spaces in neighborhoods um, that had lower incomes, right? Because the disparity was you were seeing great and beautiful architecture and more higher and higher income producing neighborhoods that you were lower income producing. So the way in which we write regulation, the way in which the city can sell its land and require someone to build certain projects, the way in which the city dictates the construction of schools and parks and libraries, you know, someone like me who's trained as a designer on the inside of that system can help to elevate the imagination and the quality of space and design in all communities, not just ones that are earning more income. Mm, and so when you, when you, um, you know, approach a city, right, let's say like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, you land in Tucson, Arizona. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you said Detroit, but okay. <laughs> Perfect. 
we can switch okay. it up. We're we're at the the we're at the world of the imaginary. So you okay. land in Detroit. This is good. This is a this is a very hot city. Um, and if design right is uh, an emb- an embodied idea, right, an embodied yeah. ideal, how do you then read it? Right, you land in Detroit. You look around, and the evidence is there. Right, the evidence mm-hmm. of thought is there. Mm-hmm. The residue of decisions are there. What, mm-hmm. what, what, what do you read? How do you, what, what, what does it tell you? Well, I, I picked Detroit because I spent four years working on a citywide plan for Detroit called Detroit Future City. Um, and the project came um, to me um, and was situated as a problem of vacant land. Like, what do we do with all this vacant land? And at the time they had, um, the amount of vacant land that would be almost equivalent to the entire size of the island of Manhattan. So it was that much vacant land, over 100,000 vacant parcels, over 80,000 abandoned homes. It's a lot. It's a very large geographic city, but that's a lot of vacant land. And so, you know, it would take a lot of imaginations to think about what to do with every single parcel of that land. So we had to begin to think about you know, these, these vacant lands were in different conditions. Sometimes vacant land was um, in neighborhoods that were otherwise strong and thriving. And sometimes they were in neighborhoods that had really bottomed out where there was maybe only one or two homes in that neighborhood. But the interesting thing about that too is that that home may have been bought by someone's family, an African-American family who had migrated out of you know, the, the rural South coming out of slavery moving to cities like Detroit, St. Louis, Chicago to work in the industrial economy. It was the first time that they could actually buy a land asset. So even though the neighborhood's deteriorating around them, this is the only thing that this family owns. They're not leaving, right? This is, this is equity that my family <laughs> sweated for. So, you know, to be able to think about, well, what is the proposition for land in that context? alongside what's the proposition for land in a neighborhood that's otherwise thriving, but maybe missing a few teeth. So this was a process where the imagination was pivotal because we had to think beyond what you could see and the possibilities of what you could see. And for lots of people, the possibilities of what we could see were limited to what was there before. But the economy has changed, populations have changed, fiscal solvency has changed. And so it required us to think really creatively at what is the widest range of possibilities of what we can do with land that may be near-term, mid-term, or long-term, right? Because all neighborhoods change and all places have a cycle of change. And so it was a really interesting process that required us to have an extremely robust and multi-tiered system of engagement and participation that would allow for multiple community members, whether it was a nonprofit, a block club, a public agency, a private developer, to find ways to um, own, activate, and develop space over different periods of time. So through the work that we did, we sort of laid out a framework for how that could happen. The next administration um, began to hire a really robust planning and development department that then went in and started to create very creative development strategies in different types of neighborhoods that really raised the bar on design excellence, um, tapping into 
different local infrastructures of design. There were a number of Black developers, Black design groups who formed um, design groups in academic spaces like University of Michigan, uh, Detroit Mercy, all lending different expertise and different design practices to how to elevate uh, design and actually transition vacant land from being a liability to an asset of opportunity, right? And so there are all these different, I think, experimentations as well as traditional forms of development that have slowly been happening in different parts of the city that I think have really raised the bar and positioned Detroit to be a kind of different design capital uh, uh, globally. I think people are looking to the ways in which Detroit is innovating the ways in which it thinks about the use of vacant land, the opportunities for developing vacant land, both near-term and long-term. And that's you know, really exciting. And so the trajectory of how we thought about that through a planning and urban design lens, and then how it's pushing back down into really discrete architectural and artistic interventions um, is really exciting to see. And and when you approached like that 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 project or just Detroit in general, kind of coming back to this idea of like what was the city saying to you? So when when I also think about design, I think about just systems to bring thought into space and yeah. time. And so you know, even language I look at as a design element, but one mm-hmm. that was constructed and because of the ways in which it was constructed, the syntax, the lexicon mm-hmm. of it, it gives us a limited access to certain uh, things that we can see in perceptivity and ways in which we can translate thought, right? And so, but even through that, I can read a book. And so (laughs) if we're looking at Detroit as as a book, right, what was, what did the book say when you got there, right? You know, like, what was that story? It kind of gets us back to narratives again, too, right? So when I got there, the narrative was very much of crisis. Mm Mm-hmm corruption, mm-hmm. defeat, and fear, mm-hmm. right? And so the city was hemorrhaging revenue, right? People were leaving in droves, right? So it's a very large city. It was once 1.8 million people. By the time I started our work in 2010, it was hovering somewhere around 700,000 or so, right? So losing 60% of its population. That's 60% of the tax revenue that you need to support roads and lights and trash pickup and schools and all the public services that our taxes pay for, right? So it was struggling like to maintain a quality of life across all of these neighborhoods. There was a fear, right? That um, this recent media talk about the city was in some ways promoting white folks coming from the suburbs and other places to land grab, right? There was a fear that because there wasn't enough revenue, the city, the public sector city was gonna start cutting off services to some of the areas that were most vacated, right? So there's a fear of race, there's a feel of acquisition because like most urban cities, they had gone through these periods of urban renewal in parts of the city that had declined, right? There's this action where a city comes in, a place has been depressed for a long time. The city comes in, does an act of eminent domain, does an overlay of urban renewal as a way of requiring those lands from private owners and then redeveloping it without them. So there's all these types of fears of like, here we go again, 
<laughs> we're not going to be a part of this, you know, renaissance. So a lot of what we, so that's the narrative. And you also had, you know, mainstream media kind of talking about, you know, well, maybe, you know, Detroit should <laughs> no longer exist or how does it shrink or, you know, let's start sending immigrants to places like Detroit so it can help repopulate it. Right? And so all of these things, sound bites out of context, you know, really help to exacerbate the fears of locals who are trying to hang on. It, it breeds a, a context of distrust between government and citizens, citizens in the public sector, public sector and government, government and philanthropy. So all of this is, you know, the narrative of what's happening on the ground when I arrive. So a lot of what we had to do to just position the work to pivot was how do we how do we build a narrative that's rooted in data, right? And how are we transparent about the realities of the condition of the city such that we're all understanding the same foundation of conditions through data? This is really hard to do because you have to trust the source of data. You have to trust who's giving you the data. You have to trust how the data is being interpreted. So it required us to really build a project of partners um, that each had their sphere of influence and trust, and that we were to use these spheres of influence of trust in order to build a larger trust mechanism. And we had many fits and starts. Our early engagement work really bombed. <laughs> you know, we, we missed the mark in, in some of the assumptions that um, we didn't listen to keenly enough. We had to redesign the mechanisms of engagement so that we can help to build that bridge of trust so that people could come to the table of imagination and problem solving and work collaboratively with, with entities that they maybe not have trusted before to build a plan and a path forward where people could see themselves in it, right? They can see themselves being able to participate not only in the creation of the vision, but ultimately the implementation of the vision. So, so narrative, unlearning the harmful narrative, building new narratives rooted in data, taking data that would otherwise be kind of deficit-based, flipping it to be more asset-oriented. Like, you know, vacant land isn't just a liability, it's really an asset for opportunity, right? There is latent value in that land. How are we figuring out ways to extract it? make it something different? How are we using our imagination to pull the value out of that? And then how are we getting that value to black and brown people? Detroit is a city of 82% African-Americans, right? How are you gaining an equity stake in that pie, right? And so a lot of the work that I've done since that, that I should say that work, some of the hardest work I've ever done, I think moved me into the frame of just city, right? The lessons that I took from that project gave me a different awareness of, as you say, language and nomenclature, right? The, the ways in which these terms like resiliency, sustainability, and I think now equity becomes so ubiquitous, right? You get in a room and go, yeah, we all want equity. Yeah, cool, yeah, 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 you leave the table. No one's asked a question like, well, what does equity mean? What's it gonna look like when it shows up? And likely when you start digging into the what it looks like, everybody has a different picture of that, right? So you really haven't reconciled it until you really know what equity looks like for people. And so what I was beginning to learn is what people want is a whole set of values, right? Equity is one value. They're looking for transparency. 
They're looking for respect. They're looking for security. They're looking for collaboration. They're looking for inclusion. They're looking for diversity, right? They're looking for choice. They're looking for access. Those are things that may help us get to an equitable outcome, but they're not in and of themselves equity. So I started this research platform to question, like, how do we know what justice looks like and what does it mean for different people? So we created something called the Justity Index, which is an index of 50 values. It's designed to allow people to go into conversations to really nuance what they mean by achieving justice, right? And it's one of the reasons why I pivoted to the language of justice and not equity, right? Because justice is to, to me to repair, it's more reparative and restorative, right? Equity can be this, this distributional thing, right? So you have X, I have Y, if I wanna get to the same level as you, I need a little more of Z so that I'm on parity with you, right? But that doesn't address my inclusion in the process. It doesn't address my access to choices. It doesn't necessarily suggest how safe, secure, and protected I feel in a space. So I wanted people to have a broader vocabulary of language and values so they can be more articulate. And it goes back to your very first question. Like, what is a just city to you? What are the values that you need in order for your city to be more just, in order for your neighborhood to be more just, in order for your institution to be more just? And so I do find that language is really quite important if we're to have these conversations and get past the rhetoric of us all nodding our heads, like, yeah, we want equity, <laughs> but not really taking the time to understand what that is. Yeah, and um, and your your um, site design for a just city dot org, is it dot org? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we will definitely link it up in the show notes. It is such an incredible just repository of thought and thinking around. Thank you. Um, you know, how does one, you know, think about a just city, and you know. It poses so many questions, right? And I think it's 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 not always about providing the answers, but how do we evolve to to asking better questions, right? Like how yeah. do we provide a vocabulary so people can ask the question they want to ask to get to the thing they're trying to get to? Yeah. And so, you know, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that project. Um, but like I said, we will definitely link it up in the show notes. I'm going to rewind just a little bit back to okay. Chicago, actually, okay. because. You know, I'm always just interested in where people grew up and Mm -hmm. there's something about the city of Chicago. I can't speak to it. I'm from St. Louis. We'll talk about that. Um, (laughs) But a sister city. But it's it was like it's been like a repository for design and and the built environment. Right. Like it was like the first place that, you know, members of the Bauhaus came. Once they had to leave, mm-hmm. you know, Germany, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Maholi Naj was there. I mean, Buckminster Fuller. Like, what is it about Chicago? <laughs> like, what is, you know, it's kind of, ra- I mean, it's not random, but what is, what, what's, what's Chicago? You How know, does it provide this design you know, bastion? Yeah, I mean, you know, I used to always say that, you know, Chicago hovers above the Midwest. <laughs> and so it's in the Midwest, but it's, you know, cosmopolitan in the way that you know the coastal cities are and I think some of 
you know, that spirit of ingenuity and innovation um, was born out of city leaders and business leaders wanting to position the city as an economic world capital, right? And they had the um, forethought to bring in visionary planners um, like Burnham, you know, after the fire to plan the city, you know, at the same scale and elegance as how DC was planned or how Paris was planned all of which were planned with through an ideal of having being a democratic capital or an economic capital, right? So business leaders are in a room thinking about the economic positioning of place and then how the design of place can facilitate that, right? And so, you know, the great the plan of Chicago of 1909 begins to set up a design um, ethos that the city continues to follow by being the home of the first skyscraper and as you say being a landing point for a number of European artists and designers and architects in particular to come position themselves to be a part of the building of this midwestern global city so it's always been in the DNA uh, of the city for sure what's really interesting now is um you know, there's this, I feel like I'm not a new Renaissance, but a, a recognition of the creative capital that exists in the city now, particularly with, with Black creatives. You know, you had Brandon Bro on your show, uh, Theaster Gates, Amanda Williams, uh, great artist, Carrie James Marshall, Simone Lee. So there's, there's this really great, um, bastion of creatives that are working now in different arenas Kanye. of the creative Kanye of the creative arts but very place-based common right all of, I mean even their lyrics really kind of talk about the place of Chicago and, and the environment of Chicago Chance the Rapper right um, whose mom was my hairdresser back in the day Ooh, um, and your hair is looking good for anybody who can see the video yeah, the hair is Lisa I'm hitting my hair up <laughs> um and so what I'm finding really interesting right now um, is the role that perhaps we're all playing, whether we're expats of Chicago, but still have strong links there or practicing there now, the opportunity we have to um, rebuild our own places of upbringing on the South side. Um, the Chicago Architectural Biennial um, happened this year and I was really honored to be invited to exhibit uh, in the show, uh, and what I and it was great because I haven't really produced any kind of creative artifact in quite a while. But um, during the pandemic, I was asked to write an article for Design uh, Harvard Design Magazine, which is coming out in February, and I was stuck. Right, so this is coming after the pandemic, after George Floyd, and I was just exhausted, and I I could not find a new thing to say. Um, I've written about. Uh, racial inequality. I've written about the public policy that has situated the inequality in the built environment, which you talked about earlier on. And I want to write about that again. I couldn't fit, I just couldn't find a voice in, in writing. And one day I just started collaging at my kitchen counter. And, I, and again, I hadn't made art in a long time. And what I, what I was trying to do was kind of mash up 
um, an understanding of how public policy created the conditions that we see in served underinvested neighborhoods against the potential of what it could be, right? So I wanted to, at the same time, I wanted someone to look at an image and understand the history of how this got here, right? So that you can unlearn the fact that it, it's because of someone's personal lack of responsibility. That's why they live in a certain condition. Actually, there's a history to why this part of town has only black people. There's a history to why there's so much vacant land. There's a history to why, you know, there's an old sign for this business, which was the first black insurance company. Like you should know this history and then understand the potential of what it could be and the role that you can have in it. So I, I did about 20 different collages that mash up different narratives of the history of um, this part of the South Side Chicago with the potential and in it, I was using, um, with permission, the cutouts of certain Black artists whose work was situated in place, right? And so um, um, using uh, the work of um, um, the Amy Sherrill portrait of Michelle Obama, for example. Um, so certain cutouts of that show up juxtaposed against certain historic images that are talking about the future and present uh, uh, and past of possibility of the South Side. Um, so what I love is the potential that we as creatives can use in our art making, but how we can actually push that into the conversation and practice of place building uh, and ownership. You know, Theaster, for example, who is a, has acquired land develops, produces art, creates opportunities for art. So he's creating creative works, but he's also building community and building place. And I'm so excited about this new sort of pathway to making beautiful places and important places that is using such a diverse collection of artistic practice, different from how Burnham was building the great white city back in the day. Um, we're now building the great black city um, and the ability to reclaim and own and generate an imaginary of place like in the image of blackness is so super freaking exciting. And so I would love to see that like in St. Louis. I'd love to see that in Cleveland. I'd love, and it is happening in New Orleans. I'd love to see it in Atlanta, right? And so how, you know, this platform that you're creating and this institute of, you know, creative imagination and pulling in all of these disciplines of practice, you know, the projects that could be situated that are very place-based and the opportunities that we could tap into by also then tapping into the black capital that's now available to invest in places, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Super exciting. Common is starting a production um, company uh, uh, space. Um, I, I can't remember if it's post-production or production space on the South Side of Chicago, right? So there are these creatives that have capital and resources that are becoming part of the the built environment renaissance of place. And I'm really, really excited about that. <laughs> no, I think it's um, amazing. Um, Theaster is on our list for sure to ask um on the podcast and yeah. you know i love i love your your invocation of the word you know imagination but i also love um how you specifically use the word artifact right because artifact mm -hmm. is like what's left 
behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're thinking about language also as as a design tool, um, in um, the intro for your Jess City's essays, um, you say over the past decade, um, there have been numerous conversations about the quote unquote livable city or the quote unquote mm-hmm. green city, the sustainable city, and most recently, the resilient city. And in thinking about those labels and kind of tying it back to, you know, even like the Bauhaus and just how people were imagining cities, mm-hmm. right? You mentioned mm-hmm. like the, the beautiful white city um, mm-hmm. and Mies van der Rohe's, you know, the radiance, uh, not um, Le Capucier's, mm-hmm. um, the radiance city. city. You know, mm-hmm. how, how do these labels and ideals, you know, hinder or aid in our ability yeah. to realize these concepts because, and, and I say it kind of undergirding knowing when, um, in some of your essays, you speak about, um, Oh, what I'm having a total mind blank. Um, but the program that swept through the country in the forties and fifties to, uh, regenerate urban, um, cities, um, oh, um uh, that, that manifested like Pruitt, I go, in St. Louis, which we talked about in, in Mabel's episode, right? That they were creating these kind of housing complex and urban um, neighborhoods, um, but kind of based around these ideals that ended up yeah. kind of faltering. So how do these kind of theoretical idealized yeah. concepts um, aid or hinder our I, ability I to they, realize them? Yeah, I think they do both. So if, if we're talking about, you know, what I'll call the different design movements, right? What's fascinating about them if you study them and 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 I have a little bit and pushed into a couple of my courses because I want uh, my students at um, Harvard Graduate School of Design to understand design as an activist proposition, right? So one way to think about that is to study design movements. And in a lot of design movements, whether it's Buckminster Fuller or Corbu or Broadacre with Frank Lloyd Wright or New Urbanism, which is was more recent, right? They, they underneath them are a set of values or societal ideals or environmental ideals that they're trying to address. They then put to that a design provocation that is intended to address those particular societal, environmental, economic conditions, right? And so there's already always that that underlay. What we so I like them for that, right? And in in a class I just taught recently, you know, I was actually challenging the students to think about in this context of distress that we are in, right? That is social and economic and environmental. You know, what is the design generate? What is the design movement that your generation of designers needs to put forward, right? Because you believe that a more justice-centered approach to design practice is necessary. What are the tenets of that, right? That we want to push out. So I think it has an important role to force the conversation of the movement of discipline of design to do something different, to think about a different process or design outcome or artifact that both does no harm to an injustice, but perhaps redresses an an injustice or puts forward a more just proposition. So I like the intention of it. I think where movements like that can become problematic is when they attempt to be overlaid on a context 
that is different from the context in which they were generated, right? And so to take Le Corbusier's you know, City of Tomorrow, which is the tower in the green, and superimpose that over the program of public housing in the United States without thinking about the implication of what it means to house very poor people in a high-rise building that's not mixed use, that doesn't have grocery stores and amenities and things like that, that's reduced to a single elevator, that was intended to be a temporary housing solution that has ended up being a multi-generational housing nightmare, right? If no one's thinking through the specifics of the use um, against the underlying ideals in which it was propagated, it can be misused and obviously fail, right? Are high rises inherently bad? No. <laughs> was the application of the high rise in an isolated land use situation with the type of resources, property management, and initial intention as a temporary housing solution problematic and ultimately would set up the high rise to fail? Absolutely. So we just have to be smarter. Um, and figure out the adaptations or the, the elements of different design movements that are useful to our time. But also maybe think about what is the new movement of our time that we need, right? Because our conditions, our economic, social, environmental conditions are ever changing. Um, so, you know, it's just hard to lift up something and plop it somewhere <laughs> without not a careful understanding of the social, political, and cultural context and the power and decision-making dynamics that are at play that have to go into the decision about what applications to use, what strategies to use, what methodologies to use that address a particular condition through design. Yeah, and you know, even when you were speaking about your your project in Detroit, um, it was beautiful to hear, like even the admission of the the iterative nature of it, right? Mm -hmm. That like we tried some things that we failed, and we had to relearn how to re-engage the community. Mm -hmm. But that was a part of the design process that we are here yeah. with the citizens and asking them, um, mm -hmm. what do they want to see? Like, what do they want to imagine? Um, you know, on your um, on. Um, Design for a Just City, um, you also have, uh, what is it, 99 Provocations to Disrupt Injustice in St. Louis. Now, yeah. I told you I'm from St. Louis, so obviously my eye was drawn to it. Um, well, I, I'm gonna have to, we're going to have to meet up so I can give you a hard copy of the book. Ooh, okay, yay. Um, <laughs> I, did, I did download it. Um, and then... I also love the title because it makes me think of uh, Jay-Z's 99 Problems. Uh, which I is have like, to admit that that was an inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think you, what, you found like you ended up getting like 126. So there were, there, yeah, there were 126 problems, but there were 99 <laughs> provocations to disrupt. Hey. Back to 99. <laughs> so so, so uh, I know this came out of your, your lab um, at uh, GSD, but like, what was the methodology in putting a project like this together? By the way, it's gorgeous. Like I said, Thank we're going to give you guys a link in the show notes, but just from a data analytics and actualization, yes. it's just 
actually aesthetically beautiful to engage with, which I think is always important, right? That it is always important. Uh, if you you're know? a designer, you're a designer to the very tip of the Ooh, toenail. It. So to the, <laughs> the design of the publication was just as exciting as design of the project. So it was actually um, one of our option studios that we have at the GSD. The option studio at the GSD is a platform um, where um, instructors get to um, create a design problem and offer that to students. Um, and in our option studio, students from architecture, urban design, planning, and landscape can participate in the studio. So it was a multidisciplinary studio. I had students from all four of the disciplines in there. And I, I designed the studio shortly after we created the Just City Index. Um, and so I was, I was maybe about five years into this question about can design really address issues of social and spatial justice. So I, through the research lab, I'm looking for the different ways to interrogate that question. So one way is through creating the index. One way was through a study we did with Gale Studios to try to create indicators to measure the presence of urban justice in public space. The third way I wanted to do was through design studios. So let's take a design problem and have the students really name injustice, right? And then figure out if design could do something to mitigate that injustice, right? I'm trying to create, you know, design research is few and far between, right? So I'm trying to create evidence of what design can do. So the methodology is, to, and there are 12 students, and so shout out to all the students for the fabulous work that you are reacting to. Um, so we did some desktop research. It's like you all, there are 12 students, you all go find 99 different problems. And we divided them up into different categories. So it's economic, housing, public space, youth, crime, education, all sorts of issues, right? So they did some desktop research before we then took a four day trip to St. Louis, right? So that we can drive around, meet with people, actually see what the landscape of the city is like. It is a city like Chicago that is deeply divided by race and class. The north side is black. The south side is predominantly white, a little bit more diverse. The middle of the city, the central corridors where the downtown and health and education institutions are with the exception of Harris Stowe, which is an HBCU, but deeply divided city and the economic investment is stark, the differences, right? Lots of vacant land on the north, lots of gentrification on the south. I mean, it's just textbook American <laughs> racial, you know, disinvestment and segregation, right? There for you to see. So we take the students then on site so they can start to ground truth some of their research that they uncovered. They can start to talk to different constituents and people on the ground, understand how things work. And then we come back and document that. So as I said, you know, part of my practice is rooted in being data-driven. So we want to create the data evidence that these problems existed. And so as you said, the task was to come up with 99, they came up with 126 or seven. Then each student, and this is what freaked them out. So if you're listening, uh, you've been through a design program, this will freak you out because most design studios, you create one design solution. Each student had to create about five to seven different solutions because I wanted a solution to each problem. So each student had to create these kind of, these ideas of how to address an injustice. 
and they were freaking out at first. <laughs> we did an all day charrette and actually Brandon came in for that with the students. I invited these different creative practitioners to come in and work with the students. So they felt like they could create more than just an architectural artifact or a landscape artifact, that they could create softwares, they can create temporal art installations, they could create programs, they could create financing mechanisms, like the solution space. Um, I wanted it to be super broad and outside of what a conventional architectural student might think about. So, and they were super excited when they did it. We did this big charrette, they came up with quick ideas. And, it, you know, you know this too, as an artist, right? Your first instinct, your first idea is usually the most brilliant, right? Because there's nothing cluttering the thought process. It is coming from some space that is beyond you and within you that your head is not overthinking. And so they were really excited that they could populate, you know, and, and activate their imagination to be disruptive, you know, disruptive to the conventional ways that they would think about creating a solution. And so they came up with these amazing set of both short and long-term different types of ideas. And so the book um, is organized and indexed by problem. It is also cross-referenced by values. One of the, so each, each um, intervention has one to three just city values that it addresses in addition to the problem. And then it has an overview of a range of different solutions that address those problems. So I, I was super excited about it. Um, one of the students, Zach Weimer, was the co-editor and designer with me along with Sienna Scarf. Um, and we created this really beautiful publication, which as you said, is available for a free download, but I have a few hard copies and I will be sure to get you a copy of that over a cocktail at Barrow Wine. Hey, come on. <laughs> Um, you know, and so this, this kind of brings me to something that I'm always wrestling with, um, which, you know, you know, you've, I don't want to say this definitively because obviously you're still alive and there's work to do, but you've done the work, <laughs> right? Like you've done, you've done this work. You've, you've, yeah. you've gone, you've, you've driven, you've, you've, you've data collected, um, you've published it, self-published mm -hmm. it, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, online for people to have access to, but I'm always thinking about this concept of access. And as much as I love, you know, having this conversation, you know, um, going to academic conferences, you know, reading, you know, theory, um, you know, in books and research, mm -hmm. I'm always thinking, how can we pull this to the street, yeah. like from yeah. academia to the street, right? I'm always thinking about my cousins who are in East St. Louis, mm -hmm. right? Who are on the mm -hmm. other side of the tracks that, mm -hmm. you know, public policy, you know, even you being at the table is so important, but you yeah. also know how long Right. Like how the, the time requirement for some of these policies to actually be put in place to touch people um, yeah. where they are in the moment. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, you know, and also when you were talking about Detroit, you're speaking about, you know, the imagination required. Right. Like what kind of dreaming you have to walk into uh, mm -hmm. a space um, to even think about what is possible and knowing that like historically, right, like vo vocabularies, languages, mm -hmm. perceptivity has been systematically denied. Right. Yeah. Um, our friends, our cousins, our aunts, our grandparents. Yeah. 
how can we bring this to the street, right? Like, like, like how, how, how can we provide a vocabulary to maybe even people who are listening now, you know, in Johannesburg, people who are yeah. listening now in Sao Paulo, how can they read their environment that they're in right now and think about ways in which they can um, shapeshift, even if it's, even if it's spiritually, right? Yeah. Shapeshift, project a future yeah. uh, that they would like to see because yeah. I think, you know, we, you know, obviously you understand that cities are, are, are quite malleable. If, if anything is always changing, it's a city. Um, yeah. It is constantly, you know, shape shifting yeah. as economies and policies mm-hmm. um, manifest. But I think people think they don't even one think about their city and how it's affecting yeah. them. And, and, and that, you know, just like what happened, you know, in the Bronx, I'm sure somewhere that person is kicking themselves in the ass somehow in some way, like I should have done this or I could have done that. Right. <laughs> yeah, and not realizing sure. what's, what, what they're, what they're in already. Yeah. So how can we provide, you know, um, a vocabulary yeah. of perceptivity for people on the street, not in the yeah. academy, but on the street to read yeah. their environment and begin to move in a way that can shift it and change it. Yeah. Well, you know, for those of us who do work, you know, with different constituencies of communities, whether it's with governments or people on the ground, and you're trying to do an engagement, you, you find that people don't engage unless something is affecting them. Like if everything's hunky-dory and cool, eh, I don't really have to be civically active, right? And so the majority of our population probably isn't that civically engaged to an extent, right? Um, But I think what the last 20 plus months have taught us through our isolation because of the pandemic, through a lot of the civil unrest that so deeply touched so many people because we all watched a person be murdered (laughs) uh, right in front of our eyes. And so it resonated and hit more people Um, differently than past injustices that are are similar in their nature have done, that perhaps this this is the moment where we have people's attention to bring more awareness. So this kind of podcast that you're doing, the way that you're putting it in the world, the type of people that you're engaging, um, which may be people who don't necessarily consider themselves designers or who we wouldn't label a designer, talking about what they do through a design lens. I think some of it is about helping us all understand what we do design uh, as a part of our everyday existence and perhaps the implication it has uh, in the world and in the built environment. There, There is something we all do or can do that can be participatory. Um, as a design. And so if we all begin to embrace ourselves as designers of our future situation, circumstances, outcomes, and conditions, um, perhaps that then engenders us into a community of change in a slightly different way. So I think the proliferation of platforms like this um, and who you draw in that can bring in a different sphere of influence right, that begins to draw different people in. It's one thing for designer, designer to talk. We're gonna bring in all of our friends and so forth. But, you know, you had Darnell Moore on, who's a friend of mine from Newark, right? He's in a slightly different kind of space, has a really different sphere of influence. 
So keep expanding that sphere of folks who, again, they might not consider themselves designers or conventional design might consider them designers, but they have a constituency that can begin to perpetuate this notion of how we can be involved in design, building just cities and awareness of our environment and understanding of how our environment became to be. So I think that's a fantastic way. You know, platforms like the Chicago Architectural Biennial, which this year's curator, David Brown, because of the pandemic, created an opportunity for him to situate the installations in community, right? So now you're getting these works of art in the spaces that they would normally be, um, having spectators and participants who ordinarily would not come to Chicago Cultural Center to see an exhibit on architecture. The architecture is across the street from their house. Right? So the way in which we push these artifacts and these practices into the spaces where we want people to be more aware about them are, are really very important. And I think you know, the ways in which um, what I would call just traditionally trained artists are starting to um, expand their reach into place-based practice right, these installations that they are building and creating in community, right? Some people call it creative placemaking, right? Um, which is a tricky term for me, so I'm not gonna use it, but some people may call it that. Um, brings a different type of awareness of knowledge about place through the medium of art practice. I think that's another way we're beginning to see this kind of happen. I, I'm sort of sitting here imagining that one day you might do this podcast in the middle of Lenox Avenue on the median, you know, where people are walking by and listening and watching, or you might do it in Marcus Garvey Park or something like that. Um, so I think we all have different and interesting ways to, to do this. Um, as you say, I made a decision several years ago uh, that I needed to document my voice and I needed it to be a part of the canon of what young architects of color and non of color um, could have another point of view. So writing became really important to me, whether it is published traditionally or I publish it myself. Creating you know, that archive of a voice is super, super important. And I'm always encouraging young designers to find platforms for documentation and publication um, because we've got to build our own canon. We've got to expand our own canon. And as you say, uh, not just situated in the spaces of the academy, but push it into mainstream mediums as well. Yeah, as you mentioned, it, it reminds me of, um, uh, in one of your essays, you mentioned um, Blackish, um, mm -hmm. which is actually a group of people I just worked with, which is amazing. Um, yes, beautiful photograph. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, but the ways in which that show... Um, really addresses the the cross or transgenerational dialogue, right? Like yeah. the things that are, you know, this upwardly mobile, upper middle class family, you know, how that compares to their children, right? Mm -hmm. Who just get to arrive, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know uh, arrive with all the options, yeah. you know, and then the family, you know, the the mother yeah. and the father, the grandparents yeah. who who had, you know, a different time, like a, a more difficult, yeah. um, challenging time. And it's something that you address a lot in in, in your work and writing, like this call for this uh, cross disciplinary 
action, right? That it's going to take all of us. And so, you know, it takes, you know, self-publishing, you know, online for people with an internet connection to access, but also the storytellers who are writing stories for scripts, right? That go right into the heart of people's television to start to bring some of this uh, vocabulary and way of, of seeing the world so that we can have the conversation because you said something in in the beginning that people don't engage. They feel, uh, they feel like everything's kind of honky dory, right? That like things are okay and I'm doing okay. And Mm -hmm. that, that, that like triggered something in me because, you know, human beings are the ultimate adaptation machines. And so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about how do we let people know that just because you've adapted to the environment does not mean that it's not affecting you. Does not mean that you were, you are not under (laughs) the thumb, right. Of some, some fucked up idea that somebody had 75 years ago. Um, and, and that you yourself blame, you you know, you blame yourself for, you blame yourself for your diabetes, not understanding the historic redlining and food deserts that you find yourself in. And so just out of human necessity, you go to where you just get the closest food right out of convenience. So, so to, to, to kind of give people back, you know, a sense of, of agency, um, Mm -hmm. and, and a level of, of forgiveness because a lot of times we take on, we personally take these things on, not yeah. realizing that we are, there are so many decisions that were made before we were even born about how heavy our body was going to be by the time we got yeah. to 65, yeah. right? Which we're seeing now <laughs> yeah. with, you know, COVID and the mm-hmm. ways in which it's just disproportionately affected, yeah. you know, communities of color that can't be divorced from, you know, the, the, the narratives of, you know, testing and our kind of tenuous relationship with the medical community yeah. so that we not only suffered then, but then we suffer now, right? We, we, yeah. there's a double, there's a double death. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's really great that you say that. I'll I'll kind of say this in in wrapping up, too. Um, You know, what you just said about working cross-disciplinary, it's also about working cross-generationally, too, right? Because if I just think about my own experience, um, you know, my parents, you know, I was was actually born on the day of the signing of the Civil Rights Act, right? So that's kind of interesting for me and didn't connect... I didn't connect to that until much, you know, uh, several years ago, like, oh, maybe I, there's some reason why I'm in this space doing what I do. But that being said, you know, I had a certain set of um, expectations that I was born with, right? Go to college, you know, get an opportunity, assimilate into a white discipline, excel at a white discipline, right? This generation of architects don't necessarily want to go a traditional track in terms of architectural firms. And they don't particularly want, want to assimilate, right? It's like, I don't need to be, make excuses for this being my third. This is what it is and you need to accept it, right? And so there's a generational you know, collaboration that has to happen alongside of this really amazing um, creative interdisciplinary collaboration that's happening, right? Me working with an artist with, with like Brandon Bro on an issue of like vacant land and getting to you know, community ownership and the different ways that different art practices and design and planning are working together to situate that longer term goal of community-based equity, right? So I'm like 
super excited by that example, one, because he's in a different creative space than me, and he's of a different generation than me, right? So that mashup is where I find the greatest promise of opportunity for the kind of play-based work we can do as a broad collective um, creative community. And I'm really excited about that. And it, you know, and it was that that I that generational um, the multiple generational sort of aspect of that is what led me to create the Chicago land narrative collages because you know, we were coming out, there was a lot of violence that happened during the period that I started collaging in Chicago too. And it's just, you know, young kids, you know, just with no hope um, and no view of the opportunity or the potential they have. And that's gotta be steeped in some generational societal disconnects, right? Um, and situations that public policy in the built environment contributed to some way, right? And so I just started imagining this kid who gets up and goes to school or maybe doesn't go to school in this neighborhood that is steeped in all of this vacant land and abandonment and disinvestment. And it's the only environment they know, right? So they don't know that there's something different. They don't know how to imagine something different because they've never seen anything different that's real. Not what's on TV, because that's not real, right? And maybe their parent grew up in that same neighborhood and they never saw it. Maybe their parent never saw it. Maybe their grandparent saw it, right? So now you've got like three generations that are there every day. You speak of adaptation is this environment. And it just struck me like people living in these communities probably they even themselves don't know why it is the way it is what it was, the fact that this used to be the home of black millionaires who started the first black bank, who started the first black newspaper, who started the first black insurance company. There were doctors living next to, you know, stockyard workers, right? You don't even know that that's the history of the land that you're on. All you know is this condition that has existed for the last 30 years. So how am I bringing awareness to that while at the same time motivating and inspiring you to claim ownership of this. And that in fact, it is real. It was real. You're on that land that held that reality. And so I, you know, what I'm really excited about is the opportunity to collaborate with folks like you and other creatives pushing into the space of how cities are shaped and formed and owned and designed by people who look like us. There's so much opportunity there. And I'm just really excited and really humbled that you thought to invite me into conversation with you. It's oh really my God, Tony, this is amazing. <laughs> um, as we wrap, I have one final question and yeah. I'm actually going to flip it because normally okay. the last question I ask is what's the world that you imagine for the future? But I feel like this entire podcast has been that. So okay. we have, we have that answer. Okay. Um, but you know, I'm actually quite interested in your own personal care, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, how do you, how have you learned to gird yourself to, mm -hmm. to, 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 um, cleanse yourself, to rejuvenate yourself, to show up and do this work? What are mm -hmm. those practices? Like what, how do you Sorry, arrive? You yeah, I got you. Yeah. How do you arrive? Oh, that's a great, <laughs> great question. Um, 
you know, after George Floyd, that preservation was, um, I think I, I, I more than any other time understood my voice as a currency and I held it. My preservation required me to not expend that currency, right? Because there were colleagues and people who wanted to know what I knew to help in the moment. And I just didn't have it. And I was very clear and candid about it. So that was um, restorative to be able to speak that and to hold it, you know, to not do public talks, to not, <laughs> like, I just needed to retreat. And I disclosed that that was what was going down and people respected it, which was fantastic. And I just need to create space for people to figure it out. Right, and for me to figure it out, like what, what, what do I want to change now? Given where we are, is there something I want to do different? How do I want to respond? Right, so it's I couldn't contribute to the community response. I needed to kind of go and what to think about my response, yeah. and so that collaging was a little bit a part of how I just kind of reacted is a part of that healing. And it gave me this really new methodology of how to sort through uh, what I want to talk about that I can ultimately then write about. So I did the collages, then I wrote the article, <laughs> right? So, so I was like, oh, I have found a new way to kind of journal or process, right? Uh, that allows me to refine the, the way I want to speak or write or something like that. So that was really cool. And I'm super excited about having that new kind of medium to play around with. Um, so that was really, um, really necessary, really therapeutic, really healing, uh, and ultimately something that I can use and share um, you know, someone remarked to me, because um, I sat in one of my classes and said, wow, you know, you're really very like reflective in the way that you teach, like you really bring yourself into it. And it's the most comfortable way I know to teach, you know, because I, I'm a practitioner first and an academic second, like I feel like. And so I have to approach my, my academic um, um, pedagogy through a more reflective practice mode. So I think you know, it helps me to talk about my experience too, as a part of imparting knowledge um, and theory um, in ways that which um, hopefully students can then use to grow and develop their own ethos in the way in which they want to practice. And so I find that incredibly rewarding. Um, and then I cook. <laughs> so there was a period um, when I, uh, I quit my last job about a job, which was planning director for the city of Newark. Um, and I thought I was done with planning and design and everything. So I enrolled in the French Culinary Institute. Um, well, and I was gonna go into the professional program, but it was a little expensive and I just quit a job. So I went into the amateur program, which you can take the first module of the amateur program and then take a test if you decide you wanna go in the professional program and then you end up in module two. So I spread it out over 22 weeks 
And then maybe a month after I started, I got the Detroit job. So I would be in Detroit three or four days a week. And then on Saturdays, I was still living in Newark. I would drive into Soho and do the five-hour cooking class. And when I tell you, it was like heaven. Like, I just loved it, loved it, loved it. I had this little fantasy that I'd have like a 20-seat restaurant and I'd be a chef and all this stuff. I really just wanted to learn how to cook without a recipe. I just wanted to figure out how to put things together, which, by the way, came in super handy during the pandemic. Oh, like, I'm so sure. All through New York, <laughs> and I had to make my own Worcestershire sauce. Like, yes, out of toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I did, there are other kind of creative outlets that I find. And so cooking, um, it was that other sort of space I created for myself to nourish my soul and my mind and my tummy oh well tony thank you so much for this conversation i just want to acknowledge you for all of this incredible foundational work you know and it's the foundational work that that allows for the next generation to step up a little bit higher to ask you know a different level of question and and i know that that's you know not easy work um it takes a lot of you it takes all of you um (laughs) and and not only have you done it but you've given it to all of us for free right like that you really created a lab um, that allows people to access this information and that you've done it at every level, right? From the, the, the architectural, you know, putting a building together level to the actual, all the way to the policy level, right? Like you, you saw a need and you expanded yourself in order to meet it. And that is something that will resonate for generations and generations. And then not only that, you bring your own lived experience to the halls of academia so that these young designers in the genesis of their practice can walk into spaces understanding a level of perceptivity and black female perceptivity that they perhaps would have not had access to, you know, given whatever life was designed for them. So thank you for that. Um, where can people find you and connect with you? Well, first of all, you've just given my mommy and my daddy (laughs) smiles by saying that. So thank (laughs) you so much. Um, so you can find, um, me in different platforms. So as you said, uh, design for the just city.org is where you can find the work of the just city lab. You can find the work of my practice, urban American city at urbanac.city. And my contact information is on both of those platforms. And I look forward to hearing from you. Look forward to being a part of your network. Again, thank you so much for inviting me. And I do have a cocktail waiting for you. So, Oh, perfect. And hopefully a souffle as well. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you again. We'll link everything up in the show notes. Um, Tony, have an incredible afternoon. And I'm holding that fantasy of a restaurant in the back of my head because there's still space for it. I I trust and believe. And it's going to be uh, impeccably if nothing, designed. If nothing else, it'll be my kitchen. So ah, I look forward right. to meeting in person. Awesome. Have a beautiful, beautiful afternoon. Thank you so much. You're welcome so much. Awesome. Thank you all so much for joining us today. I'm so grateful to Tony for hopping in to take us through the ins and outs of the urban built environment. Like many a Facebook update, 
complicated. Slide into those comments and DMs over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. Let us know some of your takeaways. Oh, and don't forget you can visit our new interactive website, blackimagination.com. Like Brazilian writer Paulo Freire stated, justice is not about a transfer of power, but about a restoration of humanity. By restoring it to those from which it was taken, it's also restored to those who lost it in the taking. Stay curious and keep dreaming. <laughs>